You're listening to Contains Moderate Peril, an independent podcast about gaming, movies, and popular culture. Written and presented by Roger Edwards. Hello and welcome to the Contains Moderate Peril podcast, episode number 181. I'm Roger, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Brian. Hi, everybody. We've got an interesting discussion ahead of us today. A very broad subject. Um, Hopefully we can cover a fair bit of ground was this. Was 2021 the year where the myth that working in video games is cool was finally shattered? Now, that's a sort of <laughs> fairly big sort of topic. So, um, How did you I come th- up with that one? <laughs> well, a lot, a lot has happened in the last year, and certainly I think the reputation of the video games industry, particularly the AAA video game industry, has taken some severe body blows, hasn't it? Yes, big time. And I just wanted to sort of explore that subject because over the years certainly the last couple of decades there has been this sort of perception by the wider public but certainly by youth culture that traditional jobs are sort of are exactly that traditional and the sort of thing that your parents do working in media television music they're cool but Working in video games, that itself was a a very sort of cool industry because compared to the other industries, it's relatively new, isn't it? You're looking at maybe from the 70s onwards. So you're looking at maybe a a 50-year period, which I know for some people is a huge amount of time, but for old duffers like us, it's not. Yeah. I thought, well, maybe the best way to sort of approach this subject is to sort of tackle it from our own personal experience. Because I'm assuming, Brian, that like myself, the 70s was your, your stepping stone and your first experience with video games. My very first video game was Pong. There you go. The original video game, I believe, that you could hook up to a TV at home with the two paddles. And it was a... Uh single pixel or dot that went across the screen and it was basically like tennis or something right yes a very simplistic game but yeah it got traction and proved to be very popular yeah we loved it and then i had an atari console back in the day and all of that so yes i am i am og gamer and i think you've hit on the key phrase there atari being that sort of company that suddenly put gaming squarely in the public eye it became the must-have gift there were certain games associated with it and compared to other industries atari itself has lots of legends associated with the company's growth the work culture it was wild and innovative and not conservative with a small c as it were and and I think maybe that was the initial sort of point where people through because in those days it was no internet it was magazines wasn't it you, you, there would be game associated magazines 
telling you about the new games and then sometimes there'll be some pages talking to you about forthcoming games and maybe a report from the the game development and that was where this concept of working in video games was cool yeah they were like the rock stars weren't they yeah and they promoted developers do you remember that like to this day who who made civilization sid meyer yeah so because it's Sid Meier's civilization, isn't it? Yes. So there, I can think of, a, I won't recite them now, but there was a bunch of you know names that were thrown out there that they actively advertised around. This person made this product, therefore it's good. What I find curious is if you actually go on Google and you, you start looking at some of the vintage magazine advertisements from the time, Initially, when games came out, they were pitched as a family game console. So the advertisements would be of a family participating in gaming. And it's, it's curious because some point between the 70s and the 80s, gaming just seemed to suddenly have this perception around it that it was a predominantly male demographic. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, and I don't know numbers. I'm just wondering if, predominantly male programmers were the ones that kind of gravitated to it and therefore they developed the games for people like themselves. Just a broad guess. I don't know. I think that's a key point because I think obviously you see what excites you as an individual through the prism of your own experience, the prism of your own tastes and likes and dislikes. And if that particular initial cadre of developers were predominantly male. I suppose there is quite naturally going to be a predisposition towards making games that were focused that way. I can remember going around friends' houses and playing on the early consoles. My experience was that when you went around people's houses, everyone was playing. It wasn't just a bunch of guys. So back when I started gaming and you had those original consoles, I think in my home, we had one TV in the entire house. So that's the TV that the, you know, if somebody else wanted to watch TV and you wanted to play games, you fought. <laughs> and you had to share time. But at some point as I was growing up and probably into, you know, junior high and then into high school, I had my own TV. And my, my siblings would have a TV in their room. And then we could hook our consoles up to that and play it in the privacy of our own room. And maybe, broadly, that contributed to it being less of a thing where the whole family was involved because it's in the living room or the family room or whatever you want to call it. And then it went into the bedroom because I preferred to play it without my brothers because they weren't bothering me then. Because I am a, an older gamer, by the time the sort of Super Nintendo arrived, I was holding down a job. I mean, it's one of my first jobs, but I was holding down a job. So to me, I went through consoles when I was buying them myself, and I was buying the games myself. So I was never dependent on parents providing a console or the latest games as a Christmas present and stuff. It's just I had a job. I could afford them. Um, but but it, it, it's curious to see that. It seems like a relatively short period of time, but from the late 90s to 
maybe 2010, suddenly you've gone from what was viewed very specifically as a niche market hobby, because there was a lot of pushback about video games at the time, wasn't there? And you remember all the various sort of government campaigns and concerned lobbies against video games. And it it went from this, it was perceived to be a niche market and detrimental to children, suddenly being this thing that everybody did. Well, the the industry's now bigger than movies, right? Yes. It takes in much more revenue than the movie industry and the TV industry, I believe. Games were suddenly moving away from PCs, away from consoles, onto handheld devices has certainly driven a greater degree of accessibility to a much broader public. What's a gamer anymore? Because everybody that has a smartphone can and possibly does play some kind of game, right? Mm -hmm. Now that we have that, and that's been for the past, what, 10 years, 11, 12 years, whatever it's been, it really broadens the the uh, market massively. And but, the broadening of the market, therefore, from a practical business point of view, is if your business market is broadening, you need to be more inclusional. And I yes. think therein lies potentially a lot of the problems because from a business point of view, you you are quite happy to invite anyone into gaming because yes it is about good games but it's also about money and everyone's money is good yeah and it turns out that guess what we have roughly you know half of the population of earth is male half of the population of earth is female and they all like to play games don't they and they all like to watch movies and they all like to read books and they all like to play with legos so when you try to cut part of that population out for whatever stupid reason you're limiting your market so looking from a business point of view that's just absolutely rank stupidity and i think that is where you then have this problem that's become endemic in the industry because you've got kids that grew up in the 70s so they were 10 in the 70s and then they went and studied in the 80s and then they started looking for jobs in the 90s and these are guys that grew up with games guys that possibly felt that video games are specifically pitched at them and and you could possibly cogently argue that they were at the time or at least the majority of it was and therefore they've then gone into that industry with their own very specific mindset of what gaming's about who and what it's pitched at and then you possibly start having the initial seeds of the problems that we're seeing manifesting themselves now and we're slowly, I think, getting to the right place, but it's slowly, unfortunately. Let's just get straight on to the elephant in the room. I mean, you had this year um, the situation with Blizzard where sexual discrimination and harassment charges were filed by the state of California against a whole company. Let's just take a moment to consider that, you know, (laughs) you've got one of the most wealthiest and prosperous states filing 
discrimination and harassment charges against one of the biggest and financially successful companies, not only in the US, but potentially in the world. And it certainly puts into perspective the sort of magnitude of what is going on. There is obviously something systemically wrong with that company. And then over the next, I mean, this this happened um, sort of, when was it now? It was... It was um, Around about July, August time that the story yeah, broke. Yeah, this past summer. Yeah, and since then, every single month there seems to be either another layer to the story that is, shall we say, not complementary to the industry. But now we've also started finding out that it's happening within companies like Ubisoft, Bungie, and again, these are these are these are big major game developers, and you start start seeing what is potentially a pattern. Then when you start getting allegations that someone's experience was so traumatic for them, they took their own life, then as far as I'm concerned, then there needs to be a very serious investigation because that to me is not something that is acceptable. No. And it's, it's interesting and unfortunate that that was the point where I personally thought, yeah, this is not good. I'm done. We've known that this stuff's been happening in companies, just tech companies in general, any company in general, right? Yes. But but specifically, you know, we, we are gamers. We talk about games. If you go back over the years, there have been allegations here and there in situations about harassment. We've also known about Crunch. You, you know about Crunch, right? Where they force these people to work their asses off for, you know, it's just stupidity just to get some game out on time. And that's a, it's a huge issue. It burns people out. They don't want to work in the industry anymore. It's, just, it's terrible. We've known about that for, hell, I've known about it for over a decade. I still play the games, right? Yeah. Because we're fans of the games and we want, our, we want our adrenaline rush or whatever it is it does for you. But as soon as I found out with Blizzard that this person that the system was that bad that somebody took their life, I'm done. And I'm done. I am done with Blizzard games. I unsubscribed from World of Warcraft, which I have played for, what, 16 years now, something like that. And I wrote as the reason for unsubscribing. It's funny you used this act word earlier. I said systemic. Sexual harassment is never okay. And I uninstalled Game, and I uninstalled Hearthstone, and Diablo, and I have uninstalled the Blizzard Launcher, and I will not play those games yet. But it's unfortunate it took that to happen for me to care enough to do that, isn't it? Because I've known yeah. about this for a long time. What I find so frustrating again and it comes back to the actual title of this piece about because video games was a new industry compared to music television film people would see this very sort of narrow snapshot of you know hey look at the informal work environment and then there'd be interviews with the boss who says people can do the hours that they want or you know we encourage people's creativity so then you would see the rest areas and there'd be you know pinball machines i mean because this was the 70s and 
and people just thought, hey, what a what a cool environment this is to work in compared to working in banking. Oh yeah. Or working in insurance or 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 doing some sort of incredibly traditional sort of mainstream job. And hence this industry got this allure that it was it was cool it was hip it was different and yet despite being that they were still knocking out the games and the, the games were still being massive hits what wasn't becoming clear at that time was because people were being worked like pack mules until the 11th hour and they finally squirted the game out the door and it was vaguely ready and then people would go and have a complete emotional or physical collapse because they had absolutely destroyed themselves in the 18-month run-up to that deadline. And, they, and this is something that I became aware of and it never sat well with me. I mean, I can remember early on when we were doing um, podcasts and stuff and you were a consummate uh, world of warcraft player and blizzcon would come along and you'd be very engaged in it and yep. they were just beginning to start showing stuff online you'd say go and check this out this presentation and you would see developers being treated as if they were members of the rolling stones or something like that insert your equivalent popular band here and you know again there's nothing wrong with recognizing talent. There's nothing wrong with praising people who have done things that are exceptional. But the moment you sort of lapse into this cult of the rock star and, you, and the people who are receiving that praise start believing the sort of adulation that they're getting, it's a dangerous sort of combination, isn't it? Yeah. It's a great recruiting tool, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, you know, the, the myth of the amazing rock star game programmer. Mm -hmm. And you and you can you can program twenty four hours a day if you want to, and you know, walk in in a grubby t shirt and shorts if you want. You know what I mean? It's just like it seems like a cool life until you really start looking into it. I don't think it's really that cool. The other thing I wanted to reference was God, this is probably going back about 10 years now. Remember at BlizzCon, Red Shirt Guy? Oh, yeah. When he just picked up on a narrative law contradiction and he confronted them with it. And they were pissed, but then they didn't want to come across that they were pissed. Yeah. Because he had them banged to rights. It was their error. He, call he called them on their own story. Yeah. And he's still around, by the way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he, I love that situation because if you've ever seen the video where he confronts the development panel and he is a very socially anxious person and obviously was struggling to even be standing there in front of this massive, like, I couldn't do it. Could you do it? I probably couldn't do it. But it meant enough to him that he stood up there and asked this question and stumped the team, and they end up making the change. They end up putting the dude in the game. Yes. And all of this stuff, and he kind of became a, a wild folk hero, to be honest with you. I think everybody during their working life has at least one job where there is a senior member of staff who they don't like, and if they're particularly oh. unfortunate, that senior member of staff doesn't like them. And there are some people 
who have major personality flaws that go into the job market to basically treat other people like shit. Or they treat people like shit to cover their lack of talent or their own personal tragedies. You know, there, there's multiple reasons, but we've, we've all at some point in our lives encountered to a greater or lesser degree unpleasant, difficult, problematic members of staff. I can't even begin to understand what it's like to have unnecessary, unwarranted pressures, harassments, let alone physical bullying and psychological bullying, sexual bullying. Yeah, it's just, uh, to me, it's totally outside of my experience, but I have enough grey matter to understand the fact that it must absolutely ruin people's lives. You're waking up every day knowing that you're going to have to go into an environment where it's untenable, but you have to endure it. Yeah, it's there. I, I think the industry lends itself to pressure in that they spend millions and millions of dollars and multiple years before the product ever actually gets out, right? So they invest all this money, hire up this team, do all of this work. It's kind of like the film industry, you know, this, it's the same type of thing. And they have this deadline. And how many times do they hit the deadline? It seems not very often, do they? How, how many games get pushed back? Think about it. Kind of crazy. But all of that is internal pressure. And that filters out, I think, to each person working on that game, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, like it's huge pressure. We, hey, you know, three years from now, we have to hit this date. And then as it becomes closer, often they realize, hey, we ain't going to hit this date. And guess what? Now you need to work 70 hours a week, 60 hours, whatever that number is. What's your quality of life at that point? As far as I'm concerned, crunch culture is a, is a, is a management failing. If you're having to endure a period of crunch, then you've, you've just planned everything and implemented everything totally incorrectly. If you want to get really philosophical and widen up debate, you can argue that corporate hierarchies attract sociopaths because sociopaths get results. But the downside of sociopaths is they are problematic and someone always suffers as a result of them being within the corporate structure. And the other thing that I found, particularly with relation to the Blizzard situation, was... Um, when the story broke, everyone tried to sort of paint it as a problem that had happened, but it happened after they had either moved up or moved on. Right. And, and then when people did a bit of investigative journalism, you suddenly found out that that was absolute horseshit and that these problems were still endemic on certain ex-member of staff's watch. I mean, there was that particular... You, not only were the guys involved in the allegations doing something wrong they obviously knew right from the get-go that they were up to no good and they reveled in their iniquities because they even called their hotel room which they were going to be partying in in inverted commas the cosby suite yeah and, and it's it's funny though how they kind of dug their own grave in many ways because then this picture comes out from that hotel room right yep with all of these people in this photo who were some of the people who were trying to say, oh, yeah, we got nothing to do with that. That was, you know, and here they are. Yes. <laughs> there, there's, 
there's some kind of sweet justice to that in some ways. I hate to say it. Like, dumbass, don't have your photo taken if you're doing all this stupid shit, right? And then after this sort of focusing particularly on the Blizzard Activision side of things, the story barrels on for two, nearly three months, and finally the pressure on CEO Bobby Kotick to step in and intervene and somehow fix the problem because he was conspicuously silent and then he makes a statement and then within 24 hours it becomes clear that he's part of the problem and that there have been various allegations made against him in the past which were all settled out of court. Shocker. Yeah. Oh, they, their response in general was just appalling to this thing. Um, it, it It's just like... This might be one of those case studies that students do in school of how not to respond to situations like this. It was bad. Still is bad. It is not good. Here's the thing about, about the whole Blizzard thing that I think is the most unfortunate. So I have made a choice to not support that company anymore, and I've stopped playing their games, which I'm fine with. I, I don't need World of Warcraft. It's an option in my life, and I'm fine without it. What is unfortunate, I think, is that I have made that decision. Many others have. Others have made decisions to stick with it. But who's really getting penalized in many ways is the actual people who are making the game, aren't they? Yes. And their reputations are getting solid. And I would hazard a guess that the majority of the people on the World of Warcraft team from the beginning to present didn't take part in these things. But that a subset of those people, unfortunately, did, right? And it was allowed to go on for a long time. So I, I feel bad in some ways because I feel like I'm punishing the good people because of the deeds of the bad people. Yes. But... The deeds of the bad people, in my mind, are so bad that I just can't support that company anymore. This raises another question, isn't it? Because there are some gamers who, who will say, I just come to play the games. I'm not really interested in what happens in the process that creates the game. I'm just here to play the game. I support the game. I support the people that make it. And there is, a, shall we say, a degree of, I won't say indifference, although for some people maybe it is indifference. There are, for some people, perhaps there's a, an element of reticence to be drawn into a wider social, political, ethical sort of issue, isn't it? They, they want to sort of compartmentalise things. And it's like, I understand that. I, I do understand if, you've had, if you have a particularly difficult job yourself and you come home and you've literally got a 45-minute window where you can do something, a leisure activity, and you want to log into a game, you don't suddenly want to be hit over the head by a big ethical conundrum about whether you actually should or should not be logging into World of Warcraft. You just right. want to log in and play for 45 minutes, maybe do a daily or do run a dungeon and, you know, have your little fix of fun to unwind from your particular problem. I try to be as, as even-handed as possible and sort of take some time to consider that position because, you know, it, it's, it's crass to just sort of arbitrarily dismiss it. 
So there's this, um, I'm going to draw a parallel with book authors because it's a little cleaner. Yes. So there's this dilemma with authors who write a wonderful book, but turn out to be maybe they're a bad person or with views that are not, um, not of the mainstream. Okay. Um, JK Rowling comes to mind. Yeah. So if, if you are a Harry Potter fan, because these are wonderful books. I have read them. They're amazing. What what world, right? The, the movies were actually pretty good. Pretty neat. But unfortunately, she has come out recently with some views that a lot of people very strongly oppose. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the books are no longer good? Or is it okay to read those books? And I don't want to get into that here at all. But I think that's what you're talking about. Now switch over to the gaming industry. What's the company that everybody hates in gaming? Mainly EA, I would have thought. Electronic Arts is yes. typically the probably most hated company, I believe, in gaming. People still play their games. So is that a disconnect? Is it okay? I mean, I'll be honest. You know, if I didn't know the history of the company and whether it was good or bad and I just came across a game and played it, I'd be perfectly fine, right? No, no matter what company produced it, because I'm just a consumer of a thing. Mm -hmm. Then when I find something out about the company and maybe it's a horrible thing, maybe, you know, World of Warcraft with me and then this thing comes to light, what does that mean? It, it's, uh, if you go on Twitch right now, and if you look in the World of Warcraft um, section, there are an awful lot of people playing that game and streaming it right now. In spite of all this stuff that just happened. And there's an awful lot of men and women playing that game, right? Yeah. And they don't seem to have a problem with it. In matter of fact, they're making a living off of it in a lot of cases. Or at least money off of it. And, and there's no easy answer to that because... Maybe somebody does feel strongly, but this is the game they played on Twitch for five years and built their audience around. Do you just throw that away? Should you? I mean, I, like, I don't want to get into any of these, these debates here, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Because everybody has a personal comfort level yeah. with, with what they do, and everybody you know, just has a personal amount of responsibility that they take and, and a personal viewpoint and their own morals and their own ethics. And I just, I find it fascinating because I am usually much more of a live and let live person, to be honest. I'm pretty chill about stuff. But in this one instance, I was done. I found my line, right? Like I literally discovered my line. And I had no idea that that was even there. I always get annoyed when people go down very vocal binary arguments on these subjects because life if it teaches you anything it's that there is nuance involved in pretty much everything and yes you, ultimately you might need to pick a side but the process of actually arriving at your personal conclusion can be a very difficult and traumatic journey <laughs> I think something else that really had an impact upon people's perception of video games 
I mean, it's been building up for a while. It's the whole monetization of them with, first of all, microtransactions, then loot boxes, then with season passes and loot boxes, and now NFTs, or non-fungible tokens. I mean, it's such a stupid concept. Lots of games, particularly MMOs, have had an unofficial market economy associated with them. It started off with selling the gold that you generate in-game. And then over the years, this has grown to there are certain non-bound items in MMOs that are considered very desirable by players. Therefore, they are sold in a grey economy. And to me, all the NFTs have done is they've just finally, the developers said, oh, shit, let's just do this and just rather than make it a third-party grey economy, let's just manage it ourselves. And there's a, a lot of sort of unnecessary complexity associated with NFTs and blockchain technology that is used to make them exclusive. But the clearest example of how this manifests itself in the games happened just at the start of December when Ubisoft said we're going to be rolling out Ubisoft Quartz, which is basically a platform within Ubisoft products to create, sell, trade NFTs. So you take a popular game like um, specifically Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint, which is the latest iteration of that franchise, and you create an account, you log into the game after having bought the game, and you get a skin, a, a cosmetic piece of gear that is unique and bespoke and has a serial number. And you can either hang on to it or you can sell it. And you sell it for real money using a third-party app. And that third party is in business um, relations with um, Ubisoft. And that item will sell for potentially a large amount of money because it is A, rare, or B, who owned it previously and you just think to yourself is this required is what possibly value is this going to add to video games it's going to make more money for the developer most certainly it's going to do that but from a gamer's perspective it means that a, a games have already been broken to accommodate the needs of other business models. I mean, content is gated. Yeah. Material is taken out of a game and then sold to you as a download or an expansion. Games are impeded by mechanics, and then the solution to circumnavigate those mechanics is then sold to you as, as something you can buy from the store. And now you're going to basically add to games Items that can be farmed and sold, and it's going to attract people who are not playing the games because they enjoy the games. It's, they're desperate to make a living. And then you're going to get the high roller speculators who are going to then swarm into the game community. And they're not there for the games. They're just there for any other sort of form of financial spe speculation. Now, I don't know about you, 
But most of the people that I've met that work in that line of work don't strike me as people who are going to bring additional bonhomie, fun, charm, and value to the gaming community. No, and if if what we're talking about is ultimately playing a game and having an opportunity to make actual money that you can spend other places on it, mm-hmm. that starts to feel a little icky, doesn't it? Because so far, the money's been confined to the games. Yes. For, for example, I can spend, I think it's 30 bucks and buy a WoW token, and I can trade that token in on a month of game time. I don't know what it is. 30 bucks is probably the wrong price, by the way. Um, but I can also trade that token to another player for gold in the game. So you can actually buy gold in WoW. You pay a premium for the token, trade it to another player, get the in-game gold. They get the token that they can either trade to another player later and speculate, or they can turn it in for game time. So it works two ways, right? One way, you're paying money and you're getting in-game gold that you can spend on stuff that you want. The other way is you're playing a lot and you're earning enough gold to buy the token from another player to pay for your subscription. That kind of seems okay doesn't it like it's that you you're selling gold but it's kind of a kind of a clean condoned way to do it and in order to earn that much gold it doesn't happen in a day it takes a long time but then if you're telling me maybe i could sell that token to somebody and get 30 bucks for it or 40 bucks for it or whatever and actually use that money to go out and buy mcdonald's that's a little weird to me is that where we're heading Yes, that's exactly where we're heading. You you can now log into the game, and the game is no longer a form of entertainment. In fact, because of the life that you this this hypothetical person that I shall be using in my analogy, they don't have time to um, play games. They um, have been pursuing every other minimum wage job as a way of providing for their family. But now there's a game, and the game is a job to them because if they can log in and farm these NFTs hang on to them or maybe trade them with some other one and then find an optimal time to sell the one that they've got, they're going to get real-world cash that they can take out of the game and buy shoes for their kids. And I don't want to fucking play something like that. Fifteen years ago, there were gold farmers in World of Warcraft and you could buy gold for real money and they were selling that gold to these companies and making actual money. What happened was... Of course, Blizzard didn't like that, so they made this official system where they, you know, you pay a premium, blah blah blah. And now it's all condoned, right? Yeah. Um, Ultima or not Ultima, sorry, EverQuest. Way back in the day, EverQuest would have these plots of land that you could buy, and people would sell them and these items and stuff outside of the game for actual money. And there were people that made a living doing that, and that's like over twenty years ago, I believe. So the real difference, it feels to me, is like there's always been a way you can make money in games, typically. Somebody, you can sell accounts, right? I can sell my, shit, my Blizzard account, my my World of Warcraft account is 16 years old with a whole ton of crap that's not in a game anymore. I have items that have been removed for years that people want, but they're bound to the account, right? I could sell that to somebody probably for hundreds of dollars. And there are websites that you can do that. 
Absolutely. I, I'm looking at one right now. I won't mention the, the, the domain for legal reasons. Yep. And you go there and you can trade accounts, as you say, which will transfer hands for a substantial amounts of money, particularly for the reason you said, if you've got an account that dates back to something that, that is no longer available in the game. So there's always been this sort of ability, but... But now they're trying to make it, like, condone it. And they're... Obviously, they're taking a cut. Yes. Which comes down to profit. And I would basically put out there that if you are playing a game for pleasure, you are playing a game. But if you are playing a game to make money, isn't there another word for that? It's called a job. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Do we do those people who come in strictly to profit if they can, if there's that method, if there's that system in place, are those the right people to be playing the games? And who's to say it is or isn't? But I, you know, remember how free, when free to play started being a thing and there was all this brouhaha over all of them unwashed masses coming into the game because they didn't have to pay for it. Remember all that? Yeah. Yeah. I sure as hell do in multiple games. And it's turned out it was rough at first, but it's turned out that free to play games ended up being pretty good for everybody, but that they kind of had to police them a lot more. Yeah. Because you're always going to get those disruptive people who have a zero, zero cost barrier of entry other than downloading a 60 gigabyte game or something. Um, and they come in and cause a lot of trouble, but they figured out kind of how to control that. But with this thing, I mean, when you're talking real money, then you have an opportunity for fraud, for crime. You've hit the point that is my main objection. There will be people who work out their own homes who will treat certain games that have NFTs in them as jobs. And then there will be people who are so dirt poor, they don't even have a PC. So they will go to some third party warehouse run by organized criminals. They will slave away, earn money yep. for the criminals and be given a pittance. You're then going to have a game that has a community that is is in tiers. You're going to have the top tier, which is people who don't play the game for the game. They are financial speculators and they will be shitty and unpleasant and they will lord it over other people. And then there will be the gamers who don't like the people at the top, but the gamers won't also like the people who are doing the game as a job. It's just a recipe for disasters. It's a, a microcosm of everything that's wrong with capitalism. It's a microcosm of what's everything that's wrong with human behavioural hierarchies, and it's just going to be rife with organised crime. It's not going to be good. And certainly for people who just like to enjoy video games, why would you even want to participate in such a cesspool? Well, then it begs the question, so at what point does the developer become implicit in organised crime? And RICO in the United States, which is not a law that you want to run afoul of ever, because mm -hmm. it is very, very bad. And that's the racketeering um, laws. Um, yeah, that would be pretty rough for a, for a game, wouldn't it? Oh, sure. But when you consider the amount of money that they stand to potentially make here, they will have an army of lawyers that mean that they just do just enough to stay on the right side of the law.
thinking about what we've discussed, the, the focus is on very big companies, EA, Ubisoft. There's lots and lots of small development businesses that are sort of tarred with the same brush. Now, these are people who've been plying their trade, haven't broken any laws, haven't harassed, bullied, tried to rip off anyone. They've just created games, put them out there and tried to make a living off them. But they just get sucked into this vortex of negative publicity because that's how media storms work, isn't it? There's always a lot of innocent victims. Always um, collateral damage, is that what it's called? Yes, yes, indeed. Upon reflection, Brian, I feel that the revelation that the, the video games industry is just as potentially flawed as the music industry, the writing industry, the TV, the film industry, ultimately it, it, it doesn't come as a surprise because it would appear that all leisure industries, in fact, just all industries per se, because they involve people, and because there are some people who are always problematic, particularly the, the higher you go in a corporate structure, it seems to me just a validation that it's just people that are the problem. And wherever you get people, ultimately, you're going to get problems. I think that's a pretty pithy summary of this. <laughs> on that somewhat cynical note that's an appropriate place to end this the 181st episode of the contains moderate peril podcast thank you very much indeed for listening we will be back in the not too distant future until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me you've been listening to contains moderate peril for more information visit containsmoderateperil.com Follow us on Twitter at Moderate Peril.